0: Hello, friends. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to listen to the following Bible teaching message by Paul Scharf. Paul is a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, serving in the Midwest. You'll find all of his ministry resources at sermonaudio.com slash where he provides new content on a regular basis, including a weekly column that he writes, along with news and updates. Right now, We encourage you to follow along as we open God's Word for today's presentation. It's our prayer that the Lord God will use this teaching to bring glory to Himself and to work faith in each of our hearts. Here now with the sermon is Paul Scharf. This morning we're going to go right into our message on the danger of replacing Israel from Romans chapter 11. The danger of replacing Israel. I have several articles I've written, I just want to point to you and Two of them are on the back table. Wrote an article for the Baptist Bulletin uh, several years ago when I was just beginning with Friends of Israel. It's called Young Restless Fundamentalist. Is there still a future for Israel? And you can take a copy of that if you like. We have a limited number of those here with us. Uh, Also, kind of a follow-up, both of these are interview articles in which I surveyed various Bible scholars for their opinions Uh, And I was privileged to write for Israel, My Glory, this January, February, and it's called Facing Replacement Theology, really kind of a follow-up to the Baptist Bolton article. And we look at these issues from a practical and theological and a historical and even a, a global point of view. I talked with Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., Dr. Charlie Dyer, Dr. James Fazio, Dr. Woodrow Kroll, about uh, this issue of replacement theology, that the, ch- the idea that the church does what? Replaces Israel. This is what we're thinking about this morning, the danger of replacing Israel. And I have a blog series that I wrote for the Friends of Israel as well in three parts where I trace the history of replacement theology and go through some things that we'll be thinking about this morning, and uh, you can look for that for more details if you're interested uh, the passage that we're considering today, Romans 11, I believe is rooted in the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God promises Abram that he will make of him a great nation, even though at this time, congregation, he had how many children? Zero. He, was past, he and his wife were past the age of having children, naturally. God said, I will make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. In fact, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, Abram. And if anyone fails to bless you, they'll be what? Cursed. Now, let me go here to my namesake, the Apostle Paul. How many know this is his actual photo? (laughs) I can say that with certainty because I took it at the Creation Museum. This is the Apostle Paul, okay? Look at what he said. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. By the way, I'll be reading this morning uh, on the pulpit from the New King James Version. I'll have that and also some quotes from the English Standard Version on the screen. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation For everyone who believes, for who first? For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We're going to think about a man this morning in just a bit who came to understand that that is talking not about the holy character of God, before whom we stand utterly condemned, but a righteousness that he imputes to our account when we believe in Jesus Christ. How? From faith to faith. That is what? By faith alone. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the just shall live by faith. Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. That verse is quoted three times in the New Testament here in Romans, the emphasis on the just. Galatians shall live. Hebrews 10, right before the great Hall of Faith chapter, by faith, right? Well, if you've believed in Christ alone, by faith alone, you've been saved by grace alone. Pastor was covering all of this this morning in Sunday school. You become part of what? The church. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish, Gentile, any any earthly background that you have blurs forever into insignificance because you're now in Jesus Christ. You're in Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. You are, to use an old uh, term that I love, which was actually thrown around many times at the IFCA convention, you're a churchman. Uh, For the ladies, I guess we could say you're a church person, okay, as well, if you'd like that better. But you're in the church. You're part of the body of Christ. Now, if you're not in the body of Christ, well, then, of course, your biggest problem is you need to believe the gospel. But it does matter, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, if you're not in the body of Christ, whether you're, what, Jewish or Gentile. Why? Because God has a plan for Israel. He has a plan for the Gentile nations as well, not nearly as positive as his plan for the Jewish nation, for the people of Israel, that we'll see. But God still has a future for Israel. If you don't catch anything else I say this morning, if you don't know anything else that the Friends of Israel stands for, please know that we teach that God still has a future for Israel. I trust that you believe that. That as he has been with his chosen nation, his national people of Israel, in their biblical past, so he is with them today in the strategic present. So he will be with them on into the prophetic future and the fulfillment of all things, every promise he's given, every prophecy ever made regarding his chosen people of Israel. Now, Paul poses a question in Romans 11. He poses it in in one form in verse 1, and he basically poses again in verse 11 a very similar question. He says, of the people of Israel, in their rejection of the Messiah, have they stumbled to the point of falling? In other words, is their rejection of the Messiah complete and permanent? Is it absolute, complete, and permanent? Now, I trust you know the fact is that if we would pose that question to all of what we might call Christendom, all of the professing outward, visible Christian church, and by that I would include not just the GRBC, the IFCA, conservatives, evangelicals, but Protestants, mainline, liberals, uh, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, the whole professing church on earth, all of what we might call Christendom, if we were to ask that question, I trust that you realize that the overwhelming, the resounding response we would receive, whether we stretch that Christendom this way across the world today, or whether we stretch it this way throughout the history of the church back to the day of Pentecost as Pastor David was teaching so eloquently in Sunday school, what would the answer be that would resound back to his congregation? It would be, have they stumbled that they should fall? What the answer would be, yes. Their, their rejection of Christ and God's rejection of them is complete and permanent. That's what the answer that would be given. The problem with that is what does Paul say? (laughs) By no means, certainly not. And he's going to go on to explain that answer. They have not stumbled that they should fall. Their fall is not complete and permanent. Here are the key words. Their fall is partial and temporary. You're going to see that before we're done. It's partial and temporary. In fact, one day their return in faith to the Lord God will be complete and eternal Paul says certainly not by no means rather through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous or as the new King James translates to provoke them to jealousy it's as if there's a a Jewish person and by the way there are Jewish friends all around us did you know that I'm sure there are some here I haven't asked or heard from anyone yet. I'm sure there are various Jewish groups, uh, organizations, certainly Jewish people. Uh, Perhaps you're not even aware yourself. But there are Jewish friends we can meet anywhere we go. And if one of them, for some reason, had stumbled in as a guest today... Uh, wondering what 's going on here at Delhi Baptist Church, and then seeing what we 're talking about and seeing what we 're doing and seeing our display, they might say, What in the world is this about you 're talking about israel you 're talking about abraham you 're talking about the covenant God made with abraham you 're talking about the plan of God for Israel he might say these these things belong to us." And that's the point Paul is making. Yes, that would be good if that were to happen because that could provoke him to jealousy for him to say, what in the world are you talking about these things? These are our things. This is our history. This is our heritage. Paul says we want to provoke them to jealousy for the sake of the gospel. Now, as our president, Dr. Jim Showers, has said throughout the history of the church, in in, in fact, fairly recent history of the church, and sometimes closer to home than we might like to admit, we haven't provoked the Jewish people to jealousy for the gospel. We've just what? Provoked them. And that's not what we want to do. Paul says their fall is riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles. God has opened a door for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. He's working in this age through the church, as opposed to the nation of Israel, which he worked through in the Old Testament, which he will work through again, primarily in the prophetic future. But right now his focus is on the church, which has primarily been made up of Gentiles. And so the Gentile world has been blessed, in one sense, by the disobedience of Israel. God has poured out his blessing on the Gentiles. But, that doesn't mean that God is finished with Israel. Paul says in verse 13, I speak to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I love that verse just as a short aside. Reminds me of Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4-5, Fulfill your ministry. And to Archippus in Colossians 4 17, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Paul said, I magnify my ministry. Please pray for us that we would magnify and multiply the ministry opportunity and effectiveness that God has given to us with the friends of Israel. And we pray also that for you here in your local church. If by any means, Paul said, I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Now, let me tell you about one man who really took this to heart. And I'm going to catch you off guard when I show you his picture. He's thinking of the fact that verse 15, they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world. And their acceptance is going to mean life from the dead, and I was talking about him earlier, but didn't mention his name. His name is Dr. Martin Luther. My wife and I said we've never been to Israel. Uh, the one time we've traveled internationally, God gave us an amazing opportunity to uh, to travel to Germany in 2017 for a 500th anniversary Reformation tour. Really, a life changing tour. I was raised confessional Lutheran originally. I have a lifelong fascination with the Reformation. When I was six years old, if you'd have asked me what is October 31st, I would have replied, Reformation Day. And I still continue. I love to study. I love to teach about the Reformation. This, of course, is Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on October 31st, 1517, the castle church door in Wittenberg. Here, Luther stands... Three and a half years later, April of 21, at the Diet of Worms, standing before Charles V, asked to recant, and he said, my conscience is bound by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand, God help me, amen. And Luther stood for the gospel and his stance changed the Western world down to our time. And I want to tell you something about Martin Luther that you have probably never heard before. And that is that in 1523, he, he wrote the most wonderful book. If the Friends of Israel had existed, then we could have perhaps published the book. It was called, Jesus Christ Was Born a Jew. And he said, I hope that if one deals in a kindly way with the Jews and instructs them carefully from Holy Scripture, many of them will become genuine Christians and turn again to the faith of their fathers, the prophets and patriarchs. He said, if, I, if someone had treated me the way some of you have treated the Jewish people, I wouldn't be a Christian either. And he said, we've got to, we've got to love these people, we've got to serve them, we've got to teach them. We've got to bring them the gospel. Therefore, I would request and advise that one deal gently with them and instruct them from Scripture, then some of them may come along. What a wonderful treatise Martin Luther wrote about the Jewish people. Because you see, he's sharing some insight here into what Paul is talking about. And we won't have time to cover every explicit detail of the metaphor Paul is going to share with us here in the coming verses. I will leave that to your pastor and his teaching in years to come to cover every part of this message. But Paul begins in verse 16 to talk about what I call the tree of salvation blessing. It's the olive tree of blessing. It's not Israel. It's not the church. It's, it's a metaphor for all that God does in saving people, providing salvation. This olive tree of blessing that's rooted in the Abrahamic covenant. And he says in verse 16, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And he's talking about this olive tree of blessing. Now, we don't want to press every detail of this metaphor and go too far out on the branches of the tree, because kind of like a parable, it's teaching some big points. If you press it too far, verse 23, you're going to have to deal with the idea that some people could lose their salvation. That's not what Paul is teaching us here in this metaphor. He's talking about the root being holy, the root being the Abrahamic covenant. The only salvation God ever promised or ever provided, is through the Abrahamic covenant to the Jewish people, through the Jewish Messiah. But the wonderful blessing is that the grace of God is so magnificent that it spills over and it makes that salvation available to you and I. uh, God told Abram, in you you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How many are glad for that last statement of the Abrahamic covenant? (laughs) And so... Paul says if some of the branches, these are the natural branches picturing the Jewish people who were the natural branches from the root, were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them. Now, I'm not a horticulturist, so I'm not going to get into the whole issue of how these graftings are done. Maybe you are and you could tell me later so I could have more insight into how all this could work. But we'll just go with the picture Paul is painting here. You being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. He says, do not boast against the branches. Where the ESV says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Twenty years after Martin Luther wrote his wonderful book, Jesus Christ Was Born a Jew, he wrote a horrendous book three years before he died called On the Jews and Their Lies. I believe personally he may have been suffering with even something like dementia at this point, but it doesn't excuse his words or nullify the effect that they had upon history. Have you ever had someone say uh, or ask the question, or maybe you've heard them pray in your presence? Lord, I pray that such and such event wouldn't have happened in the past. You ever heard anyone pray that way? We've, if if we, if we only could, we would pray, Lord, could it be that Martin Luther had not written the book on the Jews and their lies? The words are almost too horrible to quote, but I feel that we must have a picture of what has been stated historically. He said, What shall we as Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? I shall give you my sincere advice. First, to set fire to their synagogues or schools, and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom, which he means a Christ ordered society, a church state. Uh, We could get into a whole discussion of of what all this means and how Luther's words fit into it that we don't have time for this morning. And by the way, I do want to say he did not hate the Jewish people because of their ethnicity. He hated their failure to receive the gospel. And we need to understand Luther's words in his context, though again, that does not in any way absolve. Him for saying them. You see, Martin Luther could only go so far in his short lifetime as a first generation reformer, as one who was really bringing light out of the darkness at the very dawn of the Reformation. He, in his lifetime, could never fathom anything but that which he was immersed in in his church culture, even as a new Protestant say nothing of the church culture he was raised in, of the Roman Catholic Church, say nothing of the worldly culture of the day, which is that God has no future for Israel, is what he was taught. He could not fathom a future for Israel. He believed the church replaces Israel. And when we replace Israel, we dull our consciences to the certainty that the gospel is for the Jew first. God still has a future for Israel. There's a danger in replacing Israel. And it dulls our consciences to the necessity of taking the gospel to the Jewish people first. Well, Paul says in verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Paul says, wait a minute now. Well said, but because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty. But fear, do not be proud, do not be arrogant, do not be boastful. We can get this way even about our own country, of America, can't we? God has blessed our country for 400 years. He has poured out blessings upon us. I believe one great reason is because in many ways we have blessed the people of Israel. But he has poured out such blessing and made us really the center of the Christian world, the missionary-sending nation of the world. And we could get to be haughty and arrogant and boastful and proud and think, well, America must be the kingdom of God. It must be the place where God will bring his kingdom to earth. And, we, and we're totally missing the program of God that his future kingdom is going to be built through the nation of Israel, not the nation of the United States. We praise God for his blessings, but this is not the kingdom. This is not God's program to bless America. He has blessed us incidentally, and especially because we've often sought to be a blessing to the people of Israel. Now, if I can quote another, this time second-generation reformer, perhaps one much closer to us theologically, John Calvin. Again, I hate to almost read these words. They're so awful. He said even worse things about the Jewish people. He said, God so blinded the whole people that they were like restive dogs. I have had much conversation with many Jews. I have never seen either a drop of piety or a grain of truth or ingeniousness. Nay, I have never found common sense in any Jew. He had no love lost for the people of Israel, friends. He believed the church replaces Israel. What does Paul say? Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. You know, if I dare say this to such great men who accomplished far more than I will ever dream of doing, to Luther and to Calvin, you're arrogant. On this point, you're proud, you're haughty. You know, if if Luther had had ears to hear, he had a man a Lutheran follower, in fact, a man who went with him to the Marburg Colloquy in October of 1529. We were privileged to be at the Marburg Castle and in the room where it happened, one of my favorite places in the world to be at the Marburg Castle, Andreas Osiander. He wrote a book, you won't even believe the title of this book. It's called Whether It Be True and Credible That the Jews secretly strangulate Christian children and make use of their blood. This is the blood libel. Have you ever heard of that? Luther began to believe the blood libel about the Jewish people. Osiander wrote this booklet in 1529 anonymously, put it in a drawer for 11 years. He was afraid for his life. Published it in 1540. He said, It's inconceivable that the Jews should murder children and make use of their blood. You see, if Luther had had ears to hear, there was someone in his own camp who could have told him, don't be arrogant, Dr. Luther. Remember Romans 11. Osiander's son Lucas went on to become a Lutheran pastor and Bible commentator, I believe. Paul says, don't be arrogant. If God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. He's not talking about individual Christians losing their salvation. He's talking about this big picture. God can just as easily turn from the unnatural back to the natural, from the Gentiles back to Israel. In fact, he will do so. He will. He says, verse 22, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, you Gentiles. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Paul says in verse 23, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. You know, the fact that God still has a future for Israel actually gives us hope as believers today because we can see that he's kept his promises to the people of Israel. And we can know that he has begun a good work in us. We'll perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul says... God is able to graft them in again for if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery or wise in your own sight, ESV. I do not want you to be unaware of A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Remember our key words about Israel's relation to God? Their rejection is not complete and permanent, but what? Partial and temporary. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Notice the next blessed, wonderful word. Until. Just as Jesus said... You'll see me no more, he said to the people of Jerusalem. Henceforth, did he say, mean that forever, period, stop? No. What did he say? Until you say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just as he said at the fourth cup of the Passover Seder, the cup of acceptance, I'll drink of this cup no more until that day when I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. Such an important word in Bible prophecy that Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Paul told the church uh, we are to keep the ordinance of the Lord's Supper until Christ comes again. Powerful word. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Notice there will be a day when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and God will turn from the Gentiles back to the Jewish people. Romans eleven twenty five, 25, blindness in part has happened to Israel until, partial and temporary, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There will be a time when God is done working through the Gentiles primarily, and he will shift his focus prophetically back to the nation of Israel. I would be remiss if I did not say in honor of Dr. Tommy Ice how much I have learned, and credit to him. He's been not my formal academic teacher, but my teacher through the years since becoming acquainted in seminary. Thank you, Dr. Ice. And I praise the Lord for your ministry and all you have influenced me. And I want to share with you some quotes uh, from three excellent, actually four excellent study Bibles on this point. And there's a reason I'm doing that, and we're almost done, so stay with me, okay? Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Ryrie Study Bible, the gold standard of study Bibles, okay? It says Israel's blindness, here it is, is what? Say it with me. Partial and temporary. I'll let you read the whole quote. The MacArthur Study Bible says the same thing in different words. Israel has experienced a partial spiritual hardening that will last only for, until, temporary. The Jeremiah Study Bible, the temporary, setting aside and hardening of national Israel is a mystery to Paul, but it is temporary only until, the fullness of the Gentiles is seen in salvation history, then Israel will again receive its promise. And so, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Now John Calvin again said, many understand this, verse 26 of the Jewish people, as though Paul had said that religion would again be restored among them as before. That's what I believe. God will restore the Jewish people. He says, but I extend the word Israel to all the people of God. This interpretation seems to me the most suitable. In other words, the church replaces Israel. You see, when we replace Israel, we blur our senses to the importance of the fact that God still has a future for Israel. We dull our consciences. We blur our senses. We forget that God He's going to fulfill every promise he's ever made to his chosen people. When we interpret the Bible literally, according to the plain sense in context, we understand this is saying all Israel will be saved. He can't be talking about the church. The true church is already saved, right? All Israel will be saved. The Ryrie Study Bible says God will turn again to the Jews and will save all Israel at the, excuse me, at the Lord's return. The ESV study Bible, which has much excellent information, though it's not dispensational, it's orientation. But it says that Paul refers to the salvation of Israel at the end of history. Seems most likely. We're going to end with this, because our time is gone. Why am I quoting from study Bibles? One reason, well, one reason is because I trust you have one. Maybe right on your lap right now, you can go home and search the scriptures and see if these things are so consider what I say and the Lord give you understanding in these things praise the Lord for your excellent pastor David and his ongoing teaching I'm certainly no replacement for that but I hope you'll keep building on the things we are talking about this morning take your Bible just remember the notes at the bottom of the page are not inspired like the words on the top of the page right But use your study Bible. Now, there's historical precedent for this, and we're going to close with this. Here's my friend Gene Albert, who has just moved to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, to set up the Tennessee Bible Museum. He's holding a 1583 Geneva Bible in his hands. Here is a 1600 Geneva Bible. Uh, That's another passion of mine. I could spend the rest of the day talking about the Geneva Bible. Let me just say this, if you don't know this, the Geneva Bible is the Bible that built America. It's the Bible of the pilgrims. The Bible, the text, the translation done in Geneva, largely after Calvin passed and Theodore Beza, his disciple was in charge in Geneva, among others, The text and the study notes. It's the world's first study Bible. It's the Bible that built America. And let me tell you about the edition that came out in 1599 and what it says here in our text. This is absolutely astounding in its historical context. The note on Romans 11.25 says the blindness of the Jews is neither so universal. That means it's congregation what? Partial. Partial that the Lord has no elect in that nation, neither will it be continual. That means it's what? Temporary. Partial and temporary. Exact like your Ryrie study Bible. There will be a time, this is amazing that this could be written, in 1599 in Geneva. This is a story we can't conclude this morning, but I just want to whet your appetite. There will be a time in which they also... As the prophets, now we're bringing the prophets in. We're saying we're going to turn our attention even to the prophets. Even read the prophets and take the prophets literally. Now, by the way, those notes in the whole Bible are not self-consistent. They aren't all going to teach this about a future for Israel. But he says here in this note, "...they will effectually embrace that which they now so stubbornly for the most part reject and refuse." Again, that he may join the Jews and Gentiles together as it were in one body and especially may teach what duty the Gentiles owe to the Jews. He emphasizes that the nation of the Jews is not utterly cast off without hope of recovery and that God does not give them what they deserve. How many are glad God doesn't give us what we deserve? (laughs) But what he promised to Abraham. We'll end it right there where we began with the Abrahamic Covenant, there is a tremendous danger in replacing Israel. It has an effect on our consciences. It has an effect on our senses. When we neglect what Paul has said, that the gospel is for the Jew first. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. God still has a future for Israel. I wonder what you are doing in your life, and perhaps you could ask yourself this question. To be a blessing to those of whom God has said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who fail to bless you. By the way, two different Hebrew words for curse there. I'll curse those who fail to bless you. It's never been easier in the history of the church, maybe the history of the world, to be a blessing to the people of Israel to seek to take the gospel to them. I invite you to consider and ask yourself in your own heart, What am I doing to be a blessing to the people of Israel? And may we never fall prey to the trap, to the danger of replacing Israel. And Father, I pray that you will use these words this morning to encourage us here, your church today. And to bring glory to yourself. And use them to increase faith in each of our hearts. For we know that faith comes only by hearing the word of God. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.